the cross, and uh, we're going to do it each service. We're just going to continue to go Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday evening. Uh, so if you want to get them all, uh, this is the first one. Well, basically, we had an introduction on Wednesday night. Uh, if you were here Wednesday night, we had an introduction to uh, that. Uh, and uh, this coming Wednesday, I have another message a lesson uh, that we ha- usually have a brief lesson after we pray. And uh, we'll have another message concerning uh, Calvary. So uh, we're really going to focus in on the cross uh, for the next three weeks or so. And then we'll get back to our uh, other studies uh, that we've had, uh, been working on a d- discipleship uh, studies for our younger folks. Uh, and uh, we'll kind of pick up from there uh, with that. And then on Sunday morning, we'll get back to the Gospel of Mark, and then Sunday evening, uh, back to Jonah. We got a few uh, messages yet in Jonah before we move on in the Minor Prophets. So this morning, if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians uh, chapter 1, we'll get there in a minute, but uh, we're beginning this new series entitled Come to the Cross, and we're going to study several uh, passages, not just passages from the Gospels, uh, but uh, we're going to talk about the cross work of Jesus Christ. There's another number of reasons I think uh, it is going to be good for us at this point in the life of our church uh, to have this emphasis. And so I'm going to mention just a, a few of these reasons why we would uh, spend some time focusing on uh, the cross. The first reason is the cross provides simplicity in a complex world. We live in a very complex world. We just, you know, sometimes it's really hard to understand why people are doing the things they're doing, other than apart from the sinful nature uh, that they have. But we're, we live in a, a very complex world. We're living in a day where there's access to so much information uh, that it can easily become overwhelming. Uh, when the internet providers uh, say, uh, uh, you know, where do you want to go today? They're serious. Uh, you can go anywhere in the world just about without leaving your chair, and you can get information about just about everything. My wife and I will ask a question every once in a while, what does this mean? You know, or what's it? I say, Google it. And uh, all you have to do is uh, put it in there. Now, you have to be careful with the internet because... Not everything on the internet is true, so you got to be careful there. You didn't know that, did you? But um, uh, information comes from incredible number of theories and ideas and worldviews, along with a host of problems and issues and dilemmas. Um, uh, the questions that kind of uh, come about are, uh, you know, you see someone that commits a crime, and you say, "Well, how could they do that? How could they? Uh, how could they even think that way?" You know, uh, what's the point of uh, maybe an a-, a certain aspect of history? Uh, how could a nation behave the way it does? Uh, what's the solution to this problem? And so it can be very com- perplexing, confusing, overwhelming, uh, and complex. But rising above everything is the old rugged cross, which we sang about just a little while ago. Where my trophies at last I lay down, I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. 
Uh, someone has well written, it is impossible to overestimate the importance of the cross of Jesus Christ. For whether we are thinking about Christ's words from the cross, his words about the cross, or biblical doctrines of the cross, in every case, the cross is central to Christianity. Two truths follow. On the one hand, if the cross of Christ is uh, the very heart and essence of Christianity, we should expect that its meaning is simplicity. And it is. For example, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now what could be plainer than that? Uh, we also read, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Uh, the Bible often presents the cross that way, simply and with a most direct and pressing demand for faith. Now, on the other hand, if the cross is the very essence of Christianity, we might also expect it to stretch our minds to the utmost as we probe to its depths. And we find that too. Uh, indeed, we find that in some measure, the full meaning of the cross is always kind of beyond our grasp. We kind of... Uh, uh, are standing in awe at what Christ did. And, and you think about how he suffered on the, on the cross, uh, and we'll talk about some of that uh, in uh, our uh, looking at the cross. But do you, you think of the doctrines of the cross, and they might well be described by the words, a pool in which a child can wade, as well as an ocean in which an elephant can swim. I mean, it's, it can be very simple or it can be very deep. Uh, I hope we can face the day in which we live, and who knows what other complicated uh, issues in our culture are going to be coming our way, but I hope we can be helped by the study of the cross and how it provides simplicity in a complex world. There's another reason, and that is cross provides direction, direction in a busy world. Paul said in Galatians 6.14, But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Uh, the hymn writer said it this way, Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb, and shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Now, these words were spoken by individuals who have come to the cross. And they understand the centrality of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. When he said, but I, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You, you see, each one of us would do well to ask this question. What is it that excites me? What is it that gets me going? What is it that drives me? What is it that... I organize my life around. What is it that makes me happy? And what is it that gives me joy? Uh, what gives me direction for living? Well, in your case, would questions like that reveal a heart that has come to the cross? Uh, we live in a very busy, busy world. And there are tremendous demands on our time that are greater than ever before. Uh, I think the range of options available to us is greater than ever before. Uh, and a concern that ought to grip our hearts is whether we're making wise choices in a busy world and in a way that would help us give good account 
before the judgment seat of Christ. And so I'm talking about direction. And we don't want to waste our time. We want to invest it. We don't want to just waste our money. We want to invest it. We don't want to waste our gifts, our talents. We want to invest them. So the cross provides simplicity in a complex world. The cross provides direction in a busy world. And then thirdly, the cross provides motivation in an apathetic world. I've heard uh, of a series of professionally produced commercials that could be used by churches. I used to be in the advertising business. I wasn't in the television advertising business. I was in the newspaper uh, advertising business while I was an assistant pastor. Uh, but uh, So kind of advertising kind of catches my eye. But I heard about these commercials that uh, were used to reach out to a community and if these people that they're reaching out to don't have a church home, it's not something necessarily I'm, I'm recommending, but I thought it was interesting. Uh, one of the commercials shows a busy city sidewalk and a camera trained on the front window of an appliance store. And in this appliance store, there are rows and rows of televisions. Now, that you can go see the same thing at Walmart, okay? Uh, you can go to their electronic department, and they have a whole back wall there filled with all these televisions. And uh, they're all lined up, and they're usually playing the same same thing. But in this particular commercial that was uh, using this idea, what was showing on the screens was the crucifixion of Christ. And it was done pretty graphically, and it ends up with someone cynically saying, isn't there something else on? Isn't there something else to see? And then he takes a remote, and he shuts off all the sets at the same time. And then at the end of the commercial, someone comes up and says, haven't we turned him off long enough? Well, we could debate whether or not that would be an effective outreach tool or not, but one of the ways that commercial impacted me as I saw it and was thinking about it, how often would that attitude be present in my own heart and life as a person who calls myself a Christian? Many times Christians' hearts are not moved by the cross. They're not really coming to the cross, and it's not evident in their schedule. It's not evident in their lifestyle. It's not evident in their faithfulness. It's not evident in their witnessing. It's not evident in their service. It's not evident in their giving. Isn't there something else on? Their hearts have been cold and apathetic to the central things of God. So a study of the cross, I think, is important to provide us simplicity in a complex world, direction in a busy world, and motivation in an apathetic world. And so this morning we want to look at Colossians chapter 1 and begin this study looking at the cross as an instrument of peace. The cross as an instrument of peace. When you think about what was accomplished on Calvary, one of the first words I think that should come to our minds is the word peace. Paul is writing to some dear folk at the church at Colossae. Uh, it's probable he's never met them personally, but in verse 3, uh, he says he'd been giving thanks to God since he heard of their faith in Jesus Christ and the love that they had for all the saints. 
And then look down at verse 5. He says there in verse 5, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard it, and knew the grace of God in truth, as ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. So here's a group of people who obviously have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9, as in many of Paul's letters, he tells these dear folks how he'd been praying for them. Look at verse 9. He goes on to say, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness giving thanks unto Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Now, these verses are great. They're just full of marvelous truths. But what I'd like us to concentrate on this morning is the next four verses. Verse 20. It says, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that are sometime, were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through, the, through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Those are the verses I really want to focus in on this morning. And we want to see here that uh, as even take time in your personal devotions, perhaps to meditate upon the peace that we have through the blood of the cross. Uh, and so we're going to look at uh, uh, and uh, give us, uh, I think, three areas where we're going to look at uh, concerning these verses. And the first one is the need for peace, the need for peace. I don't know if you notice this or not, but in these verses, you see Paul reminds these people in Colossae in several ways just how they needed peace. Uh, and I think that's found there in verse 21. 
And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. So why does Paul remind them of these things? It's because the shortest route to apathy on the part of a Christian is to forgetting how bad he was before he came to know Christ. You will not embrace the cross if you forgot how badly you needed it. So as we look at verse 21, notice here, you were formerly alienated. Uh, the scripture that God is uh, uh, teach the scripture teaches that God is a holy God, and human beings are born in sin. Sin separated us from God, and we walk around with a profound sense of alienation from God. And that, by the way, leads to a sense of alienation from other people as well. Isn't it interesting that one of the common threads? in the number of shootings that we've had uh, over the last several years, school shootings, factory shootings, workplace shootings. Often the case, in the case, the per perpetrators spoke of being alienated from society. They just weren't a part of, of what was going on around them. They, and that, that seems to be a common thread. And from not knowing where they fit in and, and wanting to do something that, uh, they wanted to do something that would make a name for themselves. Now whether they realize it or not, the sense of alienation from people comes from a direct result of an alienation from God. And all of us could speak, I think, to one degree or another of what alienation feels like. And the impact of sin on our relationship with God and our relationship with other people is real and profound. Paul sums it up with that word, alienated. And then he also reminds the Colossian believers they were enemies in their minds. Alienated and enemies in your minds. Now the word enemies there is a word that's could be translated hateful or hostile. I don't know uh, what if you were saved early in life or later in life, but maybe you can remember what it was like before you knew Christ. Did any of you experience hostility toward God? You say, I don't need the Bible. Don't give me that preaching stuff. Some of you, yeah. Some of you, got, uh, that's... Uh, uh, yeah, well, if we were, maybe we were, like I was saved when I was a boy and I grew up in a Christian home. I didn't sense that so much, although I came to realize I was a sinner. Many don't want to hear about salvation. They don't want to hear the Bible. And the reason is that it reminds them of the turmoil that's going on inside them. It reminds them of the lack of peace. And the gospel demands that we admit we can't handle life on our own and that we need someone uh, to pay for our sin, to take charge of our lives. And we're hostile toward that idea. Many of us uh, could give living technicolor illustrations of that truth. But then there's the end of verse 21. It says, you were doing wicked works. The doing of wicked works. 
that one wouldn't be hard to prove. Maybe you can think of some things that you did before you knew Christ to help drown out the alienation, help drown out the lack of peace, and so you just got involved in some really bad stuff. And we'd say those words, uh, uh, there would be temporary uh, relief, but the guilt would be terrible. Or we'd think those thoughts and we'd practice that behavior or we'd run with people who, who also uh, did those kind of things, but we realize none of this is satisfying. The Bible teaches us that the way of the transgressor is hard. And some of us know that truth uh, all too well. The point is that people who embrace the cross never get too far away from the great need that's brought into the equation. And I'm not talking about wallowing in our sins. You know, uh, if we're going to remember how bad we were before we got saved, I'm not talking about, well, we're just going to meditate on that. But we need to remember where we came from and what God did for us in bringing us uh, to a point of reconciliation with him. I'm not talking about reviewing them and beating ourselves over the head with them. But I'm talking about a humility that comes from remembering the immensity of the need Now, this passage doesn't just speak to us about our great need for peace, but it also emphasizes the possibility of peace. The possibility. Now, you go back to verse 20, and there it says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. Now, we've uh, been, probably all of us, in situations where we have problems with another person. Or not. You always get along with everybody else, right? <laughs> Ever had a problem with someone else? Uh, maybe there's some words that were said or some things that were done. And so there becomes a breach in the relationship, and as a result, there's anything but peace. I had another older brother that we hardly lived in peace. <laughs> I was his punching bag. He was old enough more than, the, than me that uh, uh, my arm still hurts. Uh, but we, had, we just not, didn't have a good relationship at that point. Maybe you can think with me about some words that describe that. Maybe some words like turmoil or frustration or anger or bitterness or hurt or misunderstanding or hopelessness or sadness. I think we've all had situations where we've, we've felt those things in our relationship with someone else. <clears throat> so whatever you envision as the opposite of peace, that often is what's happening when there is an unsolved problem between you and another person. You might say, well, preacher, I know that. <clears throat> when that happens, I can't sleep. I can't eat. I can't stand to be with, uh, in that condition with someone else. But turn that around to the other side. What is it like to get things right? What happens to your insides is what happens. It's a a good feeling. Nothing like peace between you and another person. And so when hostilities have been addressed and their sin has been admitted and forgiveness has been granted, 
I think we can think of situations where that has happened. The passage here is saying it's possible to have that with God. Having made peace by him to reconcile all things to himself. Now, do you see the the word here that goes alongside of the word peace? It's the word reconciliation. What does that really mean? Well, it literally means to change or to make an exchange. It's one of the five words used in the New Testament to describe the process of salvation along with justification, redemption, forgiveness, adoption. The other one would be reconciliation. And here's kind of how they fit together. First of all, justification You remember that the sinner stands before God guilty and condemned, but he's declared righteous. That's what justification is. We get declared righteous. Romans 8.33, I think, uh, is a uh, wonderful passage on that. I should take time to just mention that. Romans 8, last part of uh, Romans 8 is a wonderful chapter, but in verse 33, it says, that is written, Oops, just nine. Here it is. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. We stand before God guilty, but he declares us righteous. That's justification. And then there's redemption. And that's the sinner stands before God as a slave, but he's granted his freedom. Uh, We're redeemed. Romans chapter six. more lengthy passage there we won't look at this morning, but uh, redemption. And then uh, there's forgiveness. Forgiveness speaks of the debt that is paid and is forgotten. The sinner stands before God as a debtor. We, uh, we owe God, but God, uh, Jesus Christ, paid it all. And then in, in adoption... A sinner stands before God as a stranger, and we're made sons. We're made a son, a child of God. And then that fifth word is reconciliation. Sinner stands before God as an enemy. That's what we see here in Colossians 1. But we become his friend. You see, Paul wanted the Colossians to understand the great possibility of peace having made peace by him to reconcile all things to himself. Someone has said reconciliation teaches something remarkable about the character of God. It be, he befriends his enemies. He loves those who hate him. He offers peace to those who have waged war against him. And although he is the one who has been wronged, he is the one who makes things right. He does all this while the battle still rages. Romans 5.10 says, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So according to the scriptures, there's a great need for peace, peace, and there's a great distinct possibility of peace, having made peace by him to reconcile all things to himself. Now, if I pause here just a second, a short Uh, time here, especially to maybe if there's someone here that's never trusted Christ as your Savior, maybe you're not sure that uh, you're at peace with him. Well, uh, this is the kind of place where uh, if uh, you sense that need, we'd be glad to help you uh, with that. Um, 
You know, see, uh, often we make uh, uh, two critical mistakes in regard to this topic. On one hand, many people think, well, I'm not that bad. In other words, I really don't need a Savior. Oh, yeah, I've done some wrong things, but I still, I can still be reconciled to God by my works. I'll just do enough good, and God will accept me. I can get to heaven on my own. I can make peace with God on my terms. I don't need a Savior. But this passage puts a kind of a serious crimp into that theory, doesn't it? On the other hand, there are others that might say, well, I'm too bad. I've done so many bad things, God would never save me. I've messed up. I've done too many wrong things. I, uh, if I try to straighten things out, uh, uh, that's okay, but uh, I'm ne- I'll, I'll never be able to do it. I'm too bad. Having made peace by him to reconcile all things unto himself. You can have peace with him uh, if you come to him. Now, that brings us to the third area, and that's the means of peace, the means of peace. And as we said at the beginning, the most important words, I think, in the passage are right in the middle of verse 20. Through the blood of his cross. And we won't take time to do it this at the beginning, but probably it's important for us to notice here that the Colossian church was facing a number of different false teachings that uh, uh, said uh, that they needed to understand the importance of the cross of Christ. Uh, There was one group that was very legalistic. They were saying in order to be saved, you have to keep a set of rules or of or of regulations uh, they were called the Judaizers. And anytime you have a bunch of uh, man-made rules and regulations, invariably the attention is taken away from the cross. And the danger of self-righteousness and pride is really immense. There was another strain of false teaching that believed that all matter was evil. That Jesus was not truly God. But he was something that came from God. Kind of like, you know, if you throw a rock into a pond and there's a, a ripple, that's kind of what they thought Jesus was like. He was, he came from God. They also believed that God never became a man, never took human flesh, because, again, all matter is evil. Well, both of those areas of false teaching were potentially harmful, deadly to that church. And it's amazing how Paul would cut both approaches to the ground with just a few words. He's saying, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now, I think we've said enough to allow us to begin to ask some important questions. Are you a person who is embracing the cross? Or another way of asking this would be to, uh, on an average day, How long is it from the time you open your eyes in the morning to the time you think of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you even think about it? Do we think about what Jesus Christ did for us on any given day? 
How long is it until you think about the cross? Listen, I'd like to suggest to you this morning that the answer is probably a long time. If the answer is a long time, things need to change. So much of what God wants us to do and to be is directly related to this coming to the cross. Uh, There's often a direct relationship between an appreciation uh, for the cross and living in a way that's humble. There's often a direct relationship between appreciation of the cross and living a life that is thankful. There's often a direct relationship between the appreciation of the cross and living a life that's joyful. Or living a life that's sacrificial. Or living a life that's obedient. Or being a testimony wherever we might be, at work, in the home, with our neighbors. I think there's a direct relationship between the appreciation of the cross and loving people that are hard to love. There's a relationship between the cross and being a sensitive husband and a godly wife. Being a good friend, being a productive church member, being a godly citizen. All of these things relate to our appreciation for the cross of Christ. You might say, can you suggest any specific steps to apply this message? I'm glad you asked that. Here's a list of possible ways. Meditate on the words of Christian hymns and place them perhaps at a place where you can see them. Maybe before you go to sleep, think about some words. You know, uh, think about some of the hymns that we sing about the cross, the old rugged cross, beneath the cross of Jesus. And just kind of meditate upon some of those uh, good hymns. Wake up and do the same. Maybe in your morning devotions. Don't just read your Bible. That's important. That's crucial. But take your hymn book with you and meditate on a, uh, on a hymn. You don't have to necessarily sing it, but you can read the words. Uh, write Bible verses about the cross and meditate on those Bible verses. Look up verses specifically about the cross. Maybe, again, put them someplace where you'll see them, on your nightstand, your mirror, on your computer terminal, on your, uh, I don't know if you should put them on your windshield or not. That might not be a good idea. Someplace where you'll see them. And then memorize those verses about the cross. We're going to be looking at a number of passages of course, in our series here on Come to the Cross, and you start making kind of a log of the verses about the, the cross, and here's one to start with right here. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say rather they be things in earth or things in heaven. Maybe uh, discuss some of these verses with your family. Maybe it's at a, uh, a meal time. Maybe it's uh, at bedtime. Maybe it's a, a time at breakfast or whenever your family gets together. Have, have some discussion about it. How did the cross of Christ impact me today? 
How should it have impacted me? How can it impact me tomorrow? And so you discuss the cross with your family. Another practical thing would be to read a book about the cross. Uh, there's a, probably a lot of books have been written. Some commentaries have been written. I think you always have to approach these things with caution. Uh, there's only one book that I completely trust in my library. And it's this one right here. <laughs> got to be careful that uh, uh, whatever you read, that uh, it lines up with this book right here. Uh, uh, listen to some good Christian music that emphasizes this partic- particular theme. Uh, so that's a, another way to, to have the, the cross have an impact on your life. Pray for God's help. And understanding the cross. And then determine to be more cross-centered. Be more cross-centered Christian. There's one last truth we need to see from this text. And that is the purpose. The purpose of peace. Verse 22. In the body of his flesh through death... To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Now, you notice how Paul ends his thought here in this verse. The purpose is to present you before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Having the kind of peace with God we're discussing this morning ought to motivate us to want to put off some sinful habits and replace them with godly ones. Now, there's a parallel verse uh, that uh, we could use here, and that's 1 Peter 2.24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. Notice that's the same kind of thing as he's talking about here. Holy and unblameable and unreprovable. Being dead, we live unto righteousness, Peter says. Now, a person who didn't know the Lord might look at the development of this text and say, well, God obviously doesn't know what he's doing. If he really wanted to motivate people, he wouldn't give them something for free. You know, salvation's free, by the way. You know that? He wouldn't have made something you can know for sure in advance. In fact, he wouldn't have even sent his son to pay the price himself. If God wanted to really motivate people to live a holy life, some would say the best way to do that would be to make them earn their salvation. You know, to always keep them guessing whether they're saved or lost. Everybody know, known anybody that believes that kind of religion? If you, uh, uh, maybe they put a, a restriction, three strikes and you're out. Uh, that would keep people on their toes, wouldn't it? Well, that makes a lot of sense, humanly speaking. But that's not anything like the God of the Bible, is it? He's chosen to motivate us by His grace. He's chosen to motivate us with His cross. 
And if you and I stand before him someday and have to admit that we weren't very interested in growing or weren't very interested in serving, weren't very interested in knowing him, we certainly won't be able to say that we just weren't given much reason to. God wants us to come to the cross. And I believe this issue is directly linked to our effectiveness as a church. Things, uh, I think, sometimes we think, well, we're doing okay. Some things are happening maybe in our community. Things happening in our culture uh, provide us some uh, opportunities for the gospel. And yet our, our secular society around us is unraveling. Men and women are asking some good questions, but there's opportunities for us to share the answers. Interest in the things of God, I think, uh, is, on the one hand, it doesn't seem to be very high. On the other hand, some, you know, some people are very interested in it. But I think it's going to have to do with how we approach the cross and how we make the cross work of Christ a part of our lives. I'm going to ask um, Kayla to go to the piano again. And I want you to turn in your songbooks to uh, number 2.